listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co-host, Darren. And for today's episode, we are going to be talking about Black Sabbath's fourth album, Volume 4. Volume 4 is the fourth studio album from Black Sabbath. It was released in September of 1972 on Vertigo Records. It was produced by Black Sabbath and then-manager Patrick Meehan. The album was originally intended to be titled Snowblind as a nod to the band's escalating cocaine use at the time. The record label refused to release it under that title, but the band still gave a nod to their cocaine use on the inside cover with a thank you to the great Coca-Cola company. The album cover is a monochrome photograph of Ozzy throwing the peace signs taken by Keith McMillan, credited as Keith. The photo, as well as the inside band shots, were all taken at the Birmingham Town Hall in January of 1972. Tomorrow's Dream was the only single released from the album, and although the single failed to chart, the album would reach number 13 in the U.S. and go on to platinum sales. The Volume 4 tour started on July 7, 1972 and ended on March 18, 1973. Songs the band would frequently play live from the Volume 4 album on this tour were Tomorrow's Dream, Snow Blind, Mm -hmm. Under the Sun, Wheels of Confusion, and Cornucopia. All right, so Darren, what do you remember about hearing Black Sabbath Volume 4 for the first time? Well, <laughs> first time I heard it, I thought it, it obviously sounded different from what I was used to hearing, production quality. Um, in a way that I would describe it now, I would say that it was more open, kind of sounded live. It was definitely... It definitely had a different production quality than than the previous Sabbath albums that I had, which, if memory serves, I know I had the first album, Paranoid, Master of Reality, and all of those had a more of a boxy, uh, we could say, semi-claustrophobic, and that's a little bit of an extreme term to use, but by comparison to Volume 4, I would say that the air in those, the atmosphere in those recordings was much more restricted than the feeling and the sound quality of volume four. So as a kid, I guess I was probably about 12 when I, when I first heard this, that was the most obvious thing was all of a sudden now I was listening to it and it sounded like a live album. It sounded like the, the band were playing in my room. It wasn't as confined. You know, it was way, much more atmosphere, very open sounding recording. And um, even to my limited knowledge of production value at that time, it was, it was very noticeable. Um, I enjoyed it 
right from the beginning. Um, songs that I gravitated to immediately. I love St. Vitus's dance. Um, I, ju I just love the, uh, the feel of that song. Short to the point. Uh, great groove. Uh, love, love the vocal melody in that. Uh, Supernaut was and is still one of my all-time favorite Black Sabbath songs. Um, so those are the two that grabbed me right away. Um, Wheels of Confusion was the album opener, is the album opener. Uh, slow, churning, very dense, oppressive. I had to hang with that. I liked it. Uh, it wasn't until the end when it went into the straightener that I really got into it. I just thought that was so cool. Such a, such a great vibe, unlike anything I'd heard before um, and, and very different from the rest of the song. And I thought it was really cool how it progressed into that ending. And uh, that was one of the things I looked forward to about Wheels of Confusion. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I instantly I, I took to it right away. There was there was it was not a grower. It was uh, an instantaneous like it was uh, my memories of it. I, I was on a mission to get all the Black Sabbath albums. I remember I actually had a piggy bank, a plastic piggy bank that I put all my change in and dollar bills and stuff. And I stuck it all on this piggy bank. And I went to, went to the mall with, with, with the bank in my hand and I emptied it all over the counter. I got the album, I put the album on the counter and I emptied all the change and the dollar bills all over the counter. And the guy just rolled his eyes, turned around and passed, passed me off to someone else who was much more polite, but it was sort of an embarrassing time, but I, I, I saved up for the record. Couldn't wait to get it, and well, it was worth the embarrassment. When I took it home. I loved it. I listened to it probably for two weeks straight. All the other records were temporarily put aside. Volume four was was the record. It was the record of the day, and uh, I loved it. Everything about it. The album cover was so cool. <clears throat> Ozzy and that patented peace sign. Um, yeah. Love it. Nice. I want to say it's my favorite, but at, at the time it was. And I, and I guess, you know, when you're talking about the first eight albums or so, I mean, they're interchangeable. One week, one might be my favorite. The next week could be another one. But Volume 4 is always, always gravitated into the top five. Yeah. Are you? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I have very specific memories of Volume 4, too. Uh, this was the third Black Sabbath album for me. I... I can't remember where I, I think I already had heaven and hell. So this was the third Aussie era. I should say it like that third Aussie era, black Sabbath for me. I had the first one and I had paranoid. I wasn't able to find master of reality. So I kind of went right to volume four. And it's funny because I can remember uh, a similar scenario as, as you, I would save up my pennies and my lawn mowing money mm. and uh, went to the mall. And I remember my mom had some, reason why she had to go to the mall. The mall was a good 30 minutes from where we lived. So it wasn't something that we just did on a whim. There had to be a purpose for going to the mall. So she had some reason to go to the mall. And of course, this was my chance to get another Black Sabbath album like you. I was just, you know, had it all worked out in my mind how I was going to go about, you know, getting them one by one. And, uh, it's funny, I, I don't remember exactly which store it was. It was one of the main stores in the mall, like a Sears or a JCPenney's. If I was at the mall right now, I could show you exactly where it was. 
where my mom was looking at clothes and I went and sat in a corner with the with the album and just sort of stared at the album for 30 minutes or whatever it seemed like an eternity while she was trying on clothes yeah and I was waiting to go home like please can you hurry up and I just sat there looking at the record because at this point I had heard uh, this would have been I had heard none of the songs on this album. I had no idea what this album was going to sound like. When I had gotten Paranoid, I had already heard Iron Man and yeah. Paranoid. When I had gotten the first album, I think that was that was new to me. Also, I don't think I think I may have heard NIB before I had gotten the first album, but Volume Four, I had no idea what I was what I was in for. And it's funny, I had sort of a different reaction to me this album feels very cold and damp and uh, it struck me after hearing Paranoid where Paranoid felt really dry and the guitars were really up front and Paranoid, the drums were really up front. The first Black Sabbath album has a lot of reverb on it. It has this uh, very uh, sort of an atmosphere, a vibe. Uh, uh, to it on the first record and this one to me felt like just cold and when I when I think of this album and, and I'm and I loved it <laughs> when I think of this album I was struck by uh, it seemed like there were more guitars going on in some of the songs who were more overdubbed guitars the, the mm-hmm. just the overall feel of the whole record uh, and I just I loved it and my other uh, you know, I can remember hearing Wheels of Confusion is still one of my favorite Black Sabbath songs. I love that melody that, that Ozzy sings in that, uh, you know, Ozzy's voice at this point creeping up higher in his range because, because I had skipped over, I hadn't heard Master of Reality yet. So it seemed like Ozzy's voice was higher, it was getting higher than, than it was on the, the other albums that I had. And my other clear memory is, is I got it. I came home and I listened to it. And for whatever reason, I wasn't able to listen to the entire thing in one sitting. And everybody in my house went to bed and, and I didn't want to keep everybody up. So I went into our garage and we had, I had a crappy tape player in, the, in a garage, like a built-in speaker type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I listened to side two of the cassette and I can remember hearing Under the Sun and feeling here it was at night in a dimly lit cold garage in the winter and feeling almost scared. I, I was really like, whoa, this is so, uh, it just had this, this creepy sound to it. And I still think that that's, that main riff in that song is maybe one of Iommi's evilest uh, riffs and that, that descending line at the end, do 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 do, bum bum bum. The way it feels like it's slowing down and everything. I mean, it was just in the lyrics in it are kind of. I don't want no priest telling me about the God in the sky. It was even kind of like, wow. It just it really made a made a really big impression on me. And I remember feeling like just scared the whole like i don't know the atmosphere of hearing it in and everything so so i have real fun fun memories of this album and in my mind i always break the the black sabbath ozzy years the 70s era ozzy years into uh three categories 
it's the first three albums for me. I sort of lump them together. Then I lump together the next three, volume four, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, and Sabotage. And then uh, the last two, Technical Ecstasy and Never Say Die. So volume four for me is like the start of that sort of second chapter uh-huh. in, in the, the, the Sabbath book and just everything about it. The sound of the album, I loved it. It's got more guitar going on in it. It's a little bit more atmospheric, uh, snowblind, the weirdness of things like effects. I mean, as a kid, I was just like, that's the kind of stuff that was just blowing my mind. It's like, it's so weird. Uh, changes, you know, the, the, the ballad in it. So uh, yeah, it's just an album. The album cover, like you mentioned, I thought was, it was just so cool and everything. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a South album that they all have a special place in my heart, but that one, I have some real specific, I can really remember exactly where I was when I heard that one for the first time. Yeah. It, it's, um, when you say that you, you group them I, in groups of three, I, I could definitely see the first three, you know, in one group. And then it seems like there's a gap between Master of Reality and Volume 4. Like somewhere in between, there should be a missing link, but there isn't. Because the way that Volume 4 contrasts the production and just the overall vibe, the warmth, the vintagey tone of Master of Reality, you know, it, it, it's it's a very drastic. It's a, there is a profound contrast between those two albums. Um, so that that was something that I always thought was interesting. It's like how how could a band go from having this this sort of sound that by the third album had kind of like more or less become their sound. You know, that warm, vintage tube amp sound and then go from there to volume four, which, as I described, my impression was that it sounded to me like it was recorded in a concert hall. You know, there's a lot of atmosphere. And, and I understand what you're saying about it being cold. I, I can appreciate that. And, and I, I can hear that, too. It wasn't what came to me when I listened to it, but... I can definitely relate to what you're saying and I, and I could, I can hear more of a, of a coldness in volume four than I, than I certainly can in any of the first three albums. Um, and so, part of that might've been that uh, this was the first album that they produced themselves. Yeah. yeah. So I think they were able to, uh, this is where they officially start experimenting in the studio Master of Reality, there was a little bit of that going on with some more guitar overdubs, the drum overdubs in uh, Children of the Grave. But I think on volume four is where they really start. Uh, yeah. They don't have anybody anybody they have to answer to essentially. And even though Patrick Meehan is listed as a co-producer, according to everything I read, he really didn't have anything to do with it. It was basically, they they could do whatever they wanted to do. It was right. their first time recording in America. Uh, the situation, they had more time to do what they want to do. They had the money, they had the, 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 you know, the success of the first three albums yeah. under their belt. So they were probably just feeling like they could uh, branch out a little bit more and experiment with, with different 
types of arrangements and overdubbing more guitars and just just the percussion like in uh, uh super knot and stuff like that yeah and i think the common denominator with the first three albums production wise was roger bain i think there was a little bit of roger bain in all three of those albums even though each album was slightly different from one another there was a common denominator and that was you know the production involvement of roger bain kind of brought in that warmth and uh you know that was present on on those three albums now they were basically independent um it's the first album that they recorded in in the u.s los angeles um and uh you know different facility different studio completely different outlook on on recording this album you know they were left to their own devices uh you know through the process of being in the studio uh, in the three previous albums i guess they well at least tony i think felt that he had gathered enough experience to be able to do what he wanted to do um ozzy in ozzy's book when he talks about volume four he said one of the reasons that they wanted to go uh well one of the reasons they wanted to record in america was they when from touring before they they liked la they thought it was more of a laid-back more relaxed comfortable atmosphere they wanted to sort of work in that in that atmosphere which would, would prove to be ironic considering the unrelaxed um drug of choice <laughs> <laughs> it was they were not very relaxed as, as as time went on during the process of this recording but uh you know and anyway so here they were they were in la and um uh, I, I think Ozzy said basically that they respected Roger Bain, but he didn't really seem to get what they were moving towards, what, what they were progressing towards, and how their music kind of fit together. And obviously, uh, Tony Iommi was pretty cognizant of, of how the arrangements were going to be. And, and at this point, I, I think, you know, working by themselves uh, in the studio at this time, I, I think it proved to be productive. I, I think. Uh, the arrangements are, are good. Everything is, is really tight. You know, I, I don't think, I don't think it was a, uh, it was a mistake to do it this way. Um, but there is a contrast between them on this album versus them in the studio with Roger Bain. So. Yeah, I would agree with that, that uh, the leap from master of reality to volume four is, is a pretty big uh, leap uh, sonically and uh, songwriting songwriting wise you know for me as a young black sabbath fan too it felt like volume four was the first album that uh, i had friends at school that maybe they had paranoid or maybe they had heard children of the grave but if i said do you, you know do you know the album volume four that was like now you're really getting into black sabbath fan territory you know everybody knew paranoid and they might have heard nib on the radio they might have heard children in the grave on the radio and recognized those first three yeah. but when you're getting into volume four it was now like okay this is uh you know you're, you're starting to get deep into for me at least as a kid it felt like i was all right now i'm really starting to, to dig into the uh get deeper into the catalog yeah you know when i first got this so the first time playing it through supernaut did sound familiar to me so i must have heard it somewhere uh, I, maybe I heard it on the radio, not really aware of who it was or, or you know, anything 
significant about it as it would become, you know, part of Black Sabbath and my, my favorite band of all time. Um, when I first heard Supernaut, when I, after I bought the record and was listening to it, it did sound familiar, but really, yeah, I mean, there's, there's none of these songs were radio friendly necessarily, um, at least not top 40 radio or, or um, any, any of the format that would support Paranoid or Iron Man or, you know, the, uh, songs from the previous album. This is definitely, yeah, I mean, this is like for the, the diehards at this point, you know. Yeah, and the, on, the only song that really survived after this tour that would stick in their set list consistently after this would be Snowblind. Yeah, that was a song that when they reunited in the late yeah. 90s and early 2000s, Snowblind, and then they did experiment and every now and then tried to pull some other songs from this album. The only real consistent song that they played from this album from tour to tour after this, including the reunion, uh, was Snowblind. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. All right. It's kind of strange because I think, I think the, uh, the, the first single was Tomorrow's Dream. Yeah, which it's is... It's a great it's, song. It, it's probably more commercially viable than Snowblind, especially when you consider that Snowblind was basically about cocaine. So there's, there's <laughs> that taboo aspect to it. Tomorrow's dream lyrically is, is a lot safer, you know, leaving tomorrow at daybreak, you know, basically pretty innocuous lyrics. Yeah, and this is, this is really the start for Black Sabbath where even though this album would eventually go on to be platinum and would get up to number 13 in the, on the U.S. charts, uh, it, it was kind of the start of them not really having any uh, with with the first three albums, I think those albums did a little bit better as far as radio airplay and getting songs on the radio. And this was sort of the start of them not getting that anymore. And uh, even though the next album, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, is, is is my favorite Black Sabbath album of all time, probably from a commercial visibility, commercially successful point of view, it they were starting to sort of step down a little bit just from a sales, uh, you know, songs on the radio kind of, kind of perspective. Um, I, I think it did do fairly well. It sputtered a little bit in the beginning, but I think it gradually built up momentum. And I think to this day, it's, it's one of their more popular albums. Um, but no, at the time it probably didn't quite, you know, out of the gate right away. Now, you know, it was probably a little bit of a letdown. I think the critics tore them apart as they usually did. Um, that's nothing new. Um, Lester Bangs though at uh, Cream Magazine <coughs> actually um, liked the album, gave it uh, really high marks. And I think that some of the other journalists kind of took note of that. Lester Bangs was kind of yes. pretty well regarded and did. Journal, journalism world, rock, heavy rock magazines, rock magazines. And I think that his, his review kind of served as a beacon and uh, other journalists started like re-examining it and say, hey, maybe, maybe I missed something. Uh, Lester Banks likes it. Uh, let me check that out. Well, it's in an album too that it's taken on, uh, I'll just say it, it's sort of taken on a certain mystique to it uh, when you had 
a lot of the stoner rock and doom bands. You know, this was an album that gets cited a lot as an influence. Uh, I remember Tom, Tom G. Warrior from Celtic Frost talking about what an impact volume four had on him. The cover of the album too, you know, for the longest time, that was an image that you saw that a lot on t-shirts and stuff like that. So the album did take on this kind of like, you know, you may, if I made a, a comparison to ACDC, like Power Age, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of ACDC fans will tell you that, yeah, Highway to Hell is the one that sold the most during the Bond era, but Power Age is really the one that the fans like and that a lot of musicians are influenced by. And I think Volume 4 had that, that effect, too, where everybody's like, yeah, Paranoid has the hits on it, but, you know, the, the, the cool kids out yeah. back, you know, <laughs> listen, they, yeah. they're listening to volume four, you know, and you hear all these musicians and bands cite volume four as, as sort of like an influence that iconic album cover. How many, there's been a bunch of bands and record labels that have, have done plays on that, that iconic, uh, that image it's been on t-shirts. It's almost like a, uh, you know not a mascot but a symbol sort of for the band almost up there like the the winged devil uh thing you know the volume four album cover is you know when i think yeah. about their ozzy era album covers maybe outside of paranoid volume four might be their most uh used or publicized uh most recognizable album cover because it's been on so many shirts and and stuff like that I think this is the album cover. This is the graphic that, that probably best represents the Ozzy era of the band. You know, I mean, Ozzy's on it for, for one, but it, it's, when I think of the Ozzy era, one of the images I, that always pops into my head is the cover of volume four. And the other thing is the wavy logo on Master of Reality. And, and both yeah. of them are iconic. You know, you'll see yeah. t-shirts now with both those images on it so if, when you're talking about 40 years later and, and, and they're still really relevant to black sabbath and then when you get into arguments with people or discussions with people about you know which era is the more dominant era of black sabbath which is the the, the more significant people want to say oh well you know i prefer the dio era that in, in, and give you a lot of reasons why and i, I can't really argue with them on the validity of it and and, and you know the integrity of, of those albums, but generally when you think of Black Sabbath, it is the Ozzy era, and it's usually this album cover or cover of Master of Reality that, that pop into your, into my mind anyway. That's yeah. right, there's also the Devil logo, but that was really introduced, I think around 75. That was on the t-shirts for, for Sabotage, and so that was that was also another iconic image that was attributed to the Ozzy era. There weren't really that many images like that. I mean, there were some that were borrowed from the, from the 70s era that were carried over into the 80s and, and, and beyond. But I, I think a lot of these, these milestones were really established between 69 and 78. I mean, this is when the band was, the band was probably the most uh, relevant, I guess things were things were definitely taking shape and they were becoming you know well known yeah for sure 
All right, well, let's, uh, let's jump into the album. So starts off with Wheels of Confusion, an awesome, in my opinion, an awesome album opener. I mentioned it when I first, my first impressions of the album, and I remember Ozzy's kind of, I love that melody line that Ozzy sings in the verses. I love the, uh, the main verse riff there when it drops into that bum, 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 you know, I love Bill Ward's drum parts on that. Uh, yeah. It's the, when it changes there at the end into the part that is often labeled as the straightener. Uh, yeah. The, the, yeah, sort of the ending, coda ending tag down to the end there. I think that that's awesome because if you listen to it with headphones, there's really only one guitar until the ending where it sort of opens up and there's a couple guitars and then it goes out and it's got that dun, 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 da, da, dun, you know, thing as it sort of fades out and Bill's doing all those cool yeah. uh, drum fills. So. You know, I, I love that when I first heard it and I, I love it just as much now. I, I can listen to that on a constant loop probably for hours and I wouldn't get tired of hearing it. It's just so cool. Um, Wheels of Confusion, you know, <laughs> as far as album openers, this is the longest song on the album. So I mean, they're kind of taking a risk putting an eight minute song as the first track on the album. But I mean, it works. It, it sets the tone. It kind of, you know, gets you in, in the head space of, of, you know, what's going to follow. And, you know, it, it's definitely a great opener. Um, very heavy. Um, just kind of plods along. Great. Tone by Iomi, uh, cool leads. Yeah, works. It's a good way to start the album. Yeah. And then Tomorrow's Dream, another uh, another great one. Yeah, um, and you could hear Bill Ward, his first, I, I believe this is like probably his first attempt at uh, double kick drum in that main beat during Tomorrow's Dream. Uh, behind uh, I always riff it's double bass drums going wow on. I didn't know that yeah yeah and uh, yeah it's a great song it's very straightforward great riff good chorus you know just a well-crafted song um, one of my favorites my definitely one of my favorites off this album but just in, in general it's a, it's a favorite Sabbath song of mine um, yeah, good follow-up to the first track, keeping things moving along. Um, and then we get the changes. Now, there's an interesting story behind this. Um, so while they were recording this album, when they were in L.A., they, were, they rented the Hotel DuPont, and they had um, like six bedrooms. Um, they would rehearse in the movie theater, um through the better part of the day probably into the night whatever their hours were um uh during the downtime iomi went to the piano in the uh in the bar the ballroom area and just started messing around with it um didn't know how to play piano kind of taught himself came up with this this riff if you want to call it that on the piano for changes um showed it to the other guys uh, Ozzy came up with the melody. Geezer wrote the lyrics, which were inspired by Bill Ward's uh, 
breakup of Bill Ward's marriage. I'm sure Bill Ward was really happy about that. <laughs> that immortalized on a song that he'd have to listen to for the rest of his life. Um, but you know, it, what's cool about it is that every broad, everybody has a piece of that song. You, you might think that, oh, well, it's just uh, kind of a one-off filler track, but it's actually a complete, pretty much complete band involvement. Even though Bill Ward isn't playing drums on it, there are no drums on it. Bill Ward's involved as far as the, uh, the lyrical inspiration. You know? Yeah, and there's like a keyboard Mellotron thing yeah. played by Geezer. <clears throat> and there's a... Uh, when for their, uh, I guess it was for what they were dubbing as the the end tour, I think, where they do like, uh, they do some live in the studio versions of a couple songs. And I know there's a clip of them doing doing yeah. this with Geezer playing the the synthesizer and Iomi playing yeah. the, the piano part. Yeah. And, uh, it sounds cool, yeah. Yeah, and this is, it's funny. Uh, I have a memory of a, of a friend of mine who had this uh, who had had this on a cassette and had the album on a cassette and he had to sort of you know hide his black sabbath cassettes from his mom you know he didn't want to you know catholic school upbringing and all that stuff and uh but his mom like found out that he that he had that he had this and and, and the way he uh got his mom off his back was Oh well, listen to this song, you know, and he played changes for and like, see, isn't this nice? They they're such a you know, they can be nice guys too. Black Sabbath aren't so bad after all. <laughs> and yeah, I, I mean, and prior to prior to that, um, there wasn't really anything that you could play for somebody to try to convince them that they were nice guys. So this was the first of its kind. This was actually a song that sounded like it was part of a school musical, that very rudimentary piano line that, you know, it definitely, yeah, I wasn't was, really shocked when I, when I found out that Tony Iommi hadn't played piano prior to this. <laughs> well, and it's, it's a, it's a ballad. And even though Sabbath had mellow songs on the other yeah. albums, like uh, Planet Caravan and Solitude, uh, Sleeping Village, uh, this is, this is a straight up, you know love song it's a straight up yeah. you know ballad uh lost love uh type of thing ozzy's singing it in a real you know mournful oh, yeah. lost my love type of uh type of way so yeah it's yeah. definitely an interesting uh definitely an interesting change for black sabbath at this point and a song that would sort of take on a life of its own uh, later Years on later. You know, ozzy yeah ozzy would do this with with his daughter and you know the song would sort of uh i remember there's there's a couple versions of uh there's this soul singer uh doing a version yeah. of it it's i've heard a couple people do uh do covers of this you know people outside of the the metal world doing covers of this song so you know like i said the song has sort of taken on a bit of life of its uh life of its own yeah, it definitely has. The, the, that soul version was really cool. I wish I could remember who it was that did that, but it was like kind of, it was circulating on uh, on the internet for for a while. It was really cool. It was uh, the melody was the same, but the the uh, vocals were really, really, really soulful. You could tell the yeah. guy that was doing it was really uh, doing it, you know, faithfully. Yeah, it was an ironic thing, like oh, I'm a 
soul singer and I'm going to do a heavy metal song. You know, right, right. He, he actually liked the song and was, you know, putting himself into it, which is cool. And then next is the uh, catchy sing-along number, FX. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know the story of this? You know how this came about? I'm sure you uh, Iomi's necklace banged yeah. into the guitar and they thought it made a neat noise. And I'm sure there were a lot of uh, chemicals and powder floating yeah. around at the time that they, you know, you can just picture a bunch of stoned out. <laughs> Dude sitting around Dudes, like yeah, yeah making like, noise and the engineer just sitting there like oh you know what are they all right I'll roll tape on it guys yeah, yeah. Uh, I've read you know the basic thing is that Iomi's cross hit the hit the guitar made that weird sound they all thought it sounded cool so they started hitting the guitar with different things um, in another version I heard that they were all naked and running around, hitting the guitar, and just completely out of their heads in the studio, and uh, just getting crazy. And you know, once they discovered that you know you can make a noise by hitting, hitting the guitar with the cross, they started taking it, uh, other objects and hitting it, and you know, ran some effects loops through it, and then you know, two minutes later we have uh, we have effects which. I mean, I, I guess it's a pretty cool, I mean, it, it certainly isn't a song, but if it were missing, I, it would be very noticeable at this point um, as a segue between changes and Supernaut. Yeah, I definitely hear this leading into Supernaut. And, yeah. and although, like you said, it's not really a, a song per se, as, as a young lad hearing this stuff, it was things like this that, that freaked me out like wow what is this this is just so weird in the context of but hey this this is this is what i loved about the 70s that bands could do something like this and uh <laughs> yeah record company you know said hey yeah whatever you know this is what the 70s was about where people experimenting and just doing different things you think of pink floyd's umaguma you know people oh, experimenting yeah. with noises and and stuff like that. And that's kind of what the seventies was about. So, you know, it's definitely not, it's, it's interesting. Somebody just recently put out a black Sabbath tribute album that is all of this record and somebody, I think it's Matt Pike from uh, high on fire. He, he, I haven't heard it, but he's credited as doing effects so i'd be sort of curious to hear what his cover version of of effects is well hopefully it's a faithful rendition <laughs> you don't want to you don't want to stray too far from the plot yeah you'll lose the vibe <laughs> yeah I, you know i guess you kind of got the shortest straw like getting uh well everybody else gets to pick their song and you get stuck with effects <laughs> Where, where, where do you go from there? I don't know. I mean, you can't really elaborate on it too much. I know Haunt did a ver I, 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 Magnetic Eye put, put that out. I think it's, it just came out recently. Um, you know, what's odd about that is they put out two Sabbath tributes. One was just a general overview, whatever Sabbath song, I guess, the band wanted to do, compilation. And then the one is a conceptual volume four 
in order. Zach Wilde did the song on here too. I'm not sure. Which under one. the sun. I think he does under, under the sun. And, and yeah. that's the only thing I've heard from it. And it was actually really, really good. And I'm not the biggest fan of black label society. So I was a little skeptical, but uh, he's, he's a Sabbath worshiper and he, he seems to stick really close to, uh, to under the sun there. It actually sounded really good. Yeah. The only one, the one I, I, I didn't didn't hear that. I, I saw that he was listed. The one that I did hear is, is Haunt's version of uh, Saint Vitus's Dance because uh, apparently the, the record label must really like it. Um, I I don't. <laughs> it, it, it's it has a weird. They've sped the whole thing up and uh, it just it sounds bizarre. It almost sounds like uh, like a bluegrass. It, it's so fast it loses the vibe. Well, the vocals are cool, uh, but the riff itself is just, it just sounds ridiculous. It's, it wasn't very successful in yeah. my mind, but you know, whatever. I mean, everything's open to interpretation. I mean, you know, and I guess that was their interpretation of it. But anyway. Right. Then yeah. next you, you can hear the hi-hats. And if you listen closely, you can even sort of hear the tape machine being turned on. You hear yeah. sort of the hiss of the tape machine yeah. start. And then you hear the super knot, which is an awesome one. Maybe one of the highlights of the album for me. Yeah, definitely for me too. I think we talked about this before when we were going through our Sabbath ranking. And it always sticks in my mind that this is one of Frank Zappa's favorite songs. He really, <laughs> really liked that, that riff. And it, it was, by all accounts, sincere. Um, you wouldn't think that someone like Frank Zappa would really have any appreciation for Black Sabbath. Um, I, I know he hated Led Zeppelin, um, but he apparently had some appreciation for Sabbath insofar as this song. Um, he liked that riff. And uh, I think that's pretty cool. Um, Frank Zappa is certainly no slouch when it comes to, uh, you know, being a musician and a producer. And, you know, he gave it the nod of approval. That means something, I think. You know, kind of gives it some validation. But, yeah, I, it, it's a really cool, unique riff. Can't say it, it really sounds like anything else that I can pinpoint from that period of time by anybody else. It almost kind of has, like, that, that riff the way that it just kind of swings it's almost like kind of a hoedown type of thing but it's heavy you know it's, it's just a strange and, and they kind of do that again on St. Vitus's dance which you know we'll get to in a few minutes but uh really creative in, in, in the riff department it just seems like uh the sky was the limit there was a lot of inspiration going with the Sabbath guys at this point especially with Tony and his riffs I mean each, each song on this album uh, redefines heaviness certainly for the, the time that it it came out I, I can't I can't think of anything else in 1972 that would have been this heavy when you're talking about under the sun and corn and, um, and cornucopia those two in particular just the real heavy and the album opener wheels of confusion I can't think of anything else was that, that was as heavy as this for the time um, yeah, and the whole, I love the whole middle section where everything, uh, it's like a, sounds like a 
like a calypso thing or something the acoustic guitar is going all the percussion oh, yeah and everything uh yeah that's that's really awesome and again just showing them just trying different things and uh, experimenting with with different with different things and you've got that super crushing heavy verse riff that word word you know but then it goes into that crazy sort of uh, middle section with all the percussion and the acoustic guitars and everything so yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely definitely wild yeah all right then side two starts off with like we mentioned earlier one of the more uh, popular songs from this from this album snow blind Mm -hmm. great song one of my favorite uh i always liked iomi's uh guitar solo in this song and the fade out of the song there's nothing really technical about it or anything it's just him doing these big bends and the those little fast trills that he does you know, I just love the way this song sort of goes out and the main riff on it. it. It it has a rhythmic feel to the verse riff that reminds me a little bit of Wheels of Confusion, the verse in that, where it's got a little bit of a groove to it. This kind of has the same thing that da 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 it's an unusual arrangement and it, you know, it goes through the, the bridge part, but before it, it, it's not a short song. It's, yeah, no, it's about, yeah, six minutes. Um, you can feel like the bridge part should be sooner than it, than it is at, at the part where you think it's going to go into a bridge just by song logic. It actually goes back to the beginning riff does another rep and then goes into the bridge. So it seems like the bridge is too late, but then as you're listening to it, it, it makes perfect sense. So it's, it's really a creative arrangement in that song. Um, and again, similar to Tomorrow's Dream, I think it's, it's just well-structured uh, verse, chorus, bridge, you know, the very melodic song. Uh, I can see why they decided that it would stay, it would remain in the set pretty much you know, up until 78 and then, and then again during the reunion era in the 90s, um, popular song. Ozzy, of course, did it. You know, it was part of his uh, Speak of the Devil live album, 82. Yeah, the opening riff to the song, too, is, is one of Iomi's greats. You know, the bomb, 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 you know, maybe up there with like the Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath riff. and. Mm -hmm. You know, just classic Iomi riffs. If you were to be, you know, making a list of classic Iomi riffs, definitely that intro riff to Snowblind. There's a certain yeah. era. Yeah, there's a certain era when Ozzy does this live, and I guess it would be 78, when he does an inflection between the, the verse lines that I really like. I look forward to hearing that. In fact, when I, when I hear live versions where he doesn't do that. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, where he does the line and goes, ah, and then he goes into the next line. It's sort of like, yeah, 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 yeah. Segs into from one line to the next. And I, I think that's really cool. He definitely does it at the uh, uh, Hammersmith Live video. And most of the boots that I've heard around 77, 78, I think he started doing it in like 77. Uh, it's really cool. 
yeah. the song as time went on. But yeah. Great song. Definitely. And like you said, it sort of shows Black Sabbath's, you know, they were never a band. We talked about this uh, on uh, Master of Reality. They were never a band that really played verse, chorus, verse, chorus type of arrangements. They always had these sort of weird sort of where did that come from kind of changes like in Snowblind here, the that that faster part, uh, you know, it was really a signature of their sound back then having, having a riff and then going into, you know, a double time section and then going yeah. back to the, to the main thing. Yeah. And this is an album that they definitely, I mean, they started doing that on, on songs from the, from the three previous albums, but this is where almost every song, with the exception of, well, St. Vitus' Dance, Laguna Sunrise, but I think every every other song has a section where it kind of breaks off from everything else and is kind of its own thing. You know, Wheels of Confusion has that, Tomorrow's Dream a little bit, uh, Supernaut definitely has it with that, that, that Latin bridge part, Snowblind has it, Cornucopia definitely has it with that just abrupt change off into outer space and then back into it again um and certainly under the sun um, so yeah i mean this is where they really get into that uh unorthodox arrangement that is sort of like idiosyncratic for them and uh, one of their trademarks from this era anyway i think lasted up until about 77 and then you know things kind of fell apart but yeah, I mean, in, in fact, this is uh, the album that I think Ozzy and, 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 and Geezer, probably Bill too, acknowledge as the happiest point in the band's career when uh, they enjoyed the making of this album and they enjoyed being a band and everybody got along and they were creative. Um, and then Ozzy goes on to say that it was just kind of ironic that very shortly after this, things would, would take a, a wrong turn, <clears throat> but. Yeah, everything's still working for them at this point, even though yeah. now the drugs are creeping in, it hasn't really af affected, affected them negatively uh, yet. You know, there's still. Not, yeah, not, not yet. I think it was, uh, well, I mean, cocaine in this point in time, you know, I, I think was relatively new, I guess, recreational uh, drug, but it was still taboo. And when they suggested calling the album Snowblind as a ode to the drug, the label, record label said, no, <laughs> no, you're not going to do that. And they, they didn't put up a fight. I think they understood that, you know, it had its, uh, yeah. Limitations, yeah, calling yeah. it by that. But, uh, and, and not to dwell too much on the drug aspect of the album but i mean you you can't talk about volume four and not address that because i mean the, i think geezer was quoted as saying the album cost them sixty thousand dollars to record they spent seventy five thousand dollars on cocaine alone <laughs> and, it, I, and it affected things um as we'll get into the well the next song um cornucopia uh that was the one that Bill had a meltdown and uh, thought he was going to get fired. He was kind of out of his head. Uh, he couldn't function. 
uh, <clears throat> you know, they're jamming the song. Bill has to come up with the beat. He couldn't wrap his head around it, probably because he was out of his mind. Um, he got paranoid. The band was like, okay, you just, you're not doing anything right now. You're not helping the situation. Just, just, just get out. So, you know, Bill kind of took that internally, probably from some paranoid things that were happening and thought he was going to get fired. And, you know, basically I think he started packing his bags and then they were like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Where are you going? Oh, you know, no, no, man, get back in there. Took some time away from it, got back into it, said he nailed it, you know. Hey, Cornucopia is kind of a strange uh, the yeah. riff and the, the drum pattern that he's, he's kind of playing in it. it. It does have a weird, I can see how it would have been a tough song to sort of get a feel to because he's not playing like just some kind of straight ahead beat underneath it. And the riff is, is, is kind of a strange, strange riff. So uh, I can see how it was a tricky one yeah, to get together. Yeah, it's a strange riff, and uh, <clears throat> well, Bill's a reactionary drummer. Um, it, it's what he qualifies his his playing as reactionary, um, and uh, so anything he plays to, he, he's got to feel the rhythm. He has to feel where the music's going. Um, plays off the riff. I think this was one that just kind of, I mean, if you've ever been into in a band, you know, you and I, of course, have, but other people listening, if you've ever been in a situation where you're, you're playing with other people, what they bring to the table, sometimes, you know, you, you connect with it. Other times, you can't quite wrap your head around it. Um, this is probably one of those things with Bill, and you can hear it, that it's just a little off-center. There's, it's not quite in a very even uh, meter. It's, it's a little bit off-time, a little bit of an offbeat. Um, but you can hear once it, once he connects, once he comes into it, then it all makes sense. But it, it, it's a complex beat. It, it's a little deceiving because it, it, it flows really well. You don't notice it until you actually, you know, try to like tap your foot along to it or, you know, try to, try to get that beat and you realize, wow, that's actually kind of off time. You know? Yeah. It, yeah it, it wasn't an easy thing to do. And, did a good job. Yeah, and then next, Laguna Sunrise. Here we are back with another kind of, you know, when I look at this this now, thinking about it here, we had Changes, which was, you know, pretty much a ballad. Effects, which is a strange, weird instrumental. And then you get Laguna Sunrise, which is just really sort of beautiful acoustic, uh, you know, instrumental kind of uh, serene, uh, this California sunrise song. I mean, yeah. I mean, he said, I only wrote it. He was watching the sun come up, you know, and then that's how he wrote this one. And I've always liked, uh, I've always liked when uh, I only plays acoustic guitar. And I think this is a really nice one because it's got a bunch of sort of uh, layered guitar parts, whereas in, uh, on like Orchid from Master of Reality. It's really just kind of one guitar basically. Here he's sort of layering the acoustic guitars and it just makes for this really nice, uh, you know, kind of beautiful sound. And it's, uh, I've said this before that 
it's the contrast that Black Sabbath can play something as nice and beautiful as this. And then two songs later, you've got Under the Sun. Yeah. And it's, it's the contrast of light and shade that uh, makes the, this, this song makes the heavier songs sound even heavier. The heavier songs make this sound even, even brighter, Absolutely. if you will. Yeah. It, it, it provides a really effective contrast. If everything were sort of dense and heavy, and slow, it would all sort of blur together and you wouldn't really be able to define the songs quite as much. But because there are these intervals in between the intense heaviness makes it a lot more effective. You know, you have changes, you have effects, um, you know, and, and here we are with Laguna Sunrise, two songs away from probably the heaviest song, definitely the heaviest song on the album, maybe one of the heaviest songs ever under the sun um, i've said before and I'll, I'll say it again i think it rivals anything by any stoner rock or doom metal band as far as as far as heaviness it, it, certainly in 1972 it's it, up to modern standards as far as tonality tempo weight density it is very very heavy song um, and again when we're talking about those song structures where things will take an abrupt turn in the middle. This is one of those songs, the, um, the double time part, uh, almost Beatles-esque with the, the sing-along uh, chorusy part there. And then of course, Bill's triplets that he comes in with are, are awesome. Um, really, really cool. And, I, and we've talked about this before, but I remember seeing a, a, a YouTube clip where Bill is, promoting uh, when he was doing a gallery. I think he put out an art book of, of some, some paintings or some computer images that he put together in a book and he was promoting that. He was some someplace, I think it was in Europe and uh, he had a crowd of kids around him and they were asking him questions about things. And of course, most of the questions weren't about his art, they were about music related topics. Well, one of the kids asked him about those triplets and under the sun. And, you know, Bill was very kind and, and said, oh, that, that, that's a great question. Uh, what influenced me to do that? Tony and Geezer and Ozzy. Um, I heard what they were playing. That's what I came up with. If they hadn't played what they were playing, I wouldn't have come up with that. My, that drum part was a reaction to what they were playing. And that, that pretty much, sums bills playing up I, and and one of the strengths of this era of black sabbath is they all come together <clears throat> working off one another's strengths building something together um that was you know huge in in terms of defining heavy metal and and, the, and you know putting putting the band black sabbath on the map um with, with, with these things that they did that no one else had done prior to that. And um, pretty cool, pretty cool how they worked together. You know, Geezer's bass lines, Tony's awesome riffs, Bill's drum patterns, Ozzy's unique vocals, all of them brought something to the table um, individually, but together it, it made Black Sabbath and it, it was brilliant. Absolutely. 
Yeah, they're for sure, for sure there at this, at this point. You know, they are the sum of all the parts. You can't really take one person out of the equation here. It just it wouldn't be Black Sabbath anymore in this early no. period when they're all clicking and, and they seem to just have a real, uh, you know, they really seem to be tuned in uh, to each other here at this point. So before Under the Sun, we have St. Vitus Dance, which is a pretty short one. It's only two minutes and 30, 30 seconds. It kind of goes by kind of quickly, but it's, a, it's an interesting one. Like you mentioned earlier, it's got sort of an interesting main riff there. It's almost like sort of an uplifting major key type riff, but then it shifts into this sort of darker minor key sounding thing and it, it kind of goes by kind of quickly but it's a it's an interesting little song it, it does it's only two and a half minutes long uh, it was like i said when we started out it was one of the first songs that i i gravitated towards i loved it i still do um but what an interesting twisted riff uh i don't know how anybody could think of something like that it's so melodic and so odd you know that that, that <laughs> pattern is just but it works so well. I mean, it's like, in a way, it's like, you know, if anybody wants to uh, question the, uh, uh, the prowess of Iomi's riff, riff crafting ingenuity, I mean, here's, here's something to, to back that up. Here's something to support that. I mean, that riff is just, and then it goes, it has that twisty little like happy part and then it goes into that da, 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 yeah. da. Seamless, seamlessly, and it's all to the point. A great vocal melody line, uh, chorus, a little 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 bridge part that's inserted. Uh, you know, all within two two and a half minutes. You, you know, you, it's one of those songs where I I love it so much. I get to the two and a half minute, and, and I'm tempted to just put the needle, pick it up, put it back in the beginning mm -hmm. again. Listen to that probably ten times. Yeah. yeah, and it always has a weird, like, the way the last chord hits. It holds that last chord, but yeah. it fades really quickly. Yeah. And then it goes right into that ominous, you know, opening riff of Under the Sun. And like you, you, you were talking, you know, just an amazing. And for this period in time, I, I just, and nobody, nobody was as heavy as this. There may have been bands that were loud and had some riffs here and there, but nobody was as ominous and, yeah, and dark sounding is this when that verse riff kicks in the bump, I mean, that is that is just yeah. absolutely killer. The whole end of the song, I love the uh, the way the guitar does that little break with like I mean, just it's an awesome you know, album closer. If I were to think about it from the Ozzy, well, Ozzy era, that might be, this might be one of my favorite album closers from yeah. the, uh, from the Ozzy era. It's just yeah. absolutely incredible. Absolutely crushing. Yeah. It's very tight. In a way I feel kind of spoiled because I got into this album when I was a kid, I was like 12 years old. Um, so, I mean, I already heard the heaviest thing there is. So even as I got older, I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's like, Oh, you gotta listen to this. It's really heavy. You gotta listen to the, Candlemass or Trouble or Pentagram or, or one of the you know the contemporary doom bands of the 80s and I'm like yeah man that's cool that, that's really Sabbathy but yeah still not as heavy as Under the Sun close but not quite 
but obviously all that stuff was influenced by Black Sabbath. But I, I feel like I wasn't as like blown away by the heavy tones of Pentagram and Trouble and, and Candle Mass as I, or St. Vitus, which Finer General, any of the uh, seminal doom metal bands <clears throat> in the 80s, wasn't quite as blown away by them as maybe some other people were that maybe hadn't hadn't had the experience of volume four yet or master of reality or but particularly uh under the sun i mean w once you've heard that uh yeah that, that's about as heavy as it gets i you know go into other genres and you know hellhammer i mean that that's pretty heavy um but like you said you know tom g he uh he cites volume four as uh very strong influence and uh obviously as heavy as hellhammer is you know he probably took some of that inspiration from under the sun <laughs> you know? yeah absolutely yeah so uh a little little side note here that uh on this tour uh this would be the tour where some dates were recorded for what would become live at last and yeah. I'm looking to see I forgot to write it down I don't have it in front of me what the dates were uh oh yeah so it would have been March 16th 1973 London the Rainbow Theater that show was professionally recorded in March 11th 1973 Manchester uh, both those shows were professionally recorded and portions of them were used for the Live at Last album, which was a unauthorized, uh, it was, we should we'll say it was put out without the band's approval, not, not a bootleg, but a, an album that their manager, when they split with their manager, he must have Patrick. held the rights to those particular tapes. and. Yeah. So if you hear the live at last album, you are hearing the band on the volume four uh, tour. Yeah, it was not authorized as a live album. It was put out by Patrick Meehan, uh, the band's former manager, who was also involved with the recording of this album. Um, put it out, it, it was unauthorized. Um, so it's technically, I guess you could say it was a bootleg, but it, it, it wasn't really. It was recorded with their knowledge. It was, I guess, intended to be used for something, uh, but they hadn't. They hadn't agreed on it, and when they split with Patrick Meehan to try to get some money, I guess he felt he had a right to try to get. He released this through NEMS, and you know, it's part of the band's discography, whether they like it or not. It's it's one that everybody has, and it's a good album. Yeah, and you can hear the. I mean, we'll probably do an episode on the live albums, maybe this one in particular, and you can hear on that live album from volume four, Tomorrow's Dream, Cornucopia, Snow and Snowblind. Those yeah. are three songs from volume four that you can hear mm -hmm. on that record. So yeah, definitely a, uh, you know, a new chapter uh, for Black Sabbath here, moving into more of their experimental phase. Uh, and uh, an exciting time uh, for them and uh, f for me you know it was always an album that uh, like i said felt like a new chapter for the band it's an album that i can you know i can come back frequently and put headphones on and really hear something that maybe i never heard before in it yeah. uh, so just a great uh, great all-around black sabbath album 
I definitely still enjoy listening to the album. I'll, I'll, on average, I'll play it, honestly, probably once every couple of weeks or so. And uh, I don't have to necessarily discover anything new about it. Sometimes I might hear a little subtle nuance that I hadn't picked up before. But really, I'm content just listening to it, uh, listening to those riffs, those songs that I, I love so much. Um, yeah, it's just a great album. It never gets old, and I highly doubt it ever will. Um, what is cool about it is there's just, you know, generation after generation of kids that are growing up that this, this music, Black Sabbath's music, this album in particular, never gets antiquated. It seems to always somehow find relevance in, in contemporary music. Um, obviously, it's, you know, from a different era, but it, it, it fits somehow... It, it always manages to fit into context of the contemporary heavy metal music. It, 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 it's, it will always be omnipresent in, in, in heavy metal music. It's just one of those albums. And I think volume four, more than any other album prior or after, is that album that will always find context no matter what year it is or, or what decade or what generation I, I think will always be relevant um and like we talked about throughout the you know the time that we've been talking about this album we keep coming back to you know how heavy it was um how uniquely heavy how the song arrangements were were outside the box whether whether it was by accident through process of just everybody playing together, um, or maybe it was by design. Regardless, this was the template for heavy metal music, and that's, I think, why it will always be part of the context of, of the genre. I mean, you listen to some Metallica songs, and you can, you can hear where, you know, even if it's not documented, you, you just know that even like with the four horsemen um, the four horsemen of course started with the song that was predominantly penned by dave mustaine it was it was called mechanics but after kurt after dave was kicked out and, and kirk Hammett joined they added that extra part the way that that middle part if you know what i'm talking about yeah that's very sabbathy there was a lot of metallica songs that would often have that that little extra, you know, riff part that was sort of not, you know, a little bit of an oddball thing, but it worked. And, and one of the reasons it did was like, I think it gave people, you know, the, the creative uh, influence to, to do things like that, to, to take a riff that doesn't necessarily, you know, you know, seamlessly flow from, you know, the part before, but, it, you know, it's okay to insert something in there. It's okay to, to have a song structure that maybe, it isn't all just like a cookie cutter verse, chorus, verse, bridge type of situation. You know, you, you can be creative with song structures. Um, but, and I definitely hear it in, in, in Metallica's music. I hear it in a lot of different bands um, subsequently. Uh, you know, I mean, even, even Venom. I mean, Venom has songs that, that were just, you know, odd, you know, uh, let me think, uh, Leave Me in Hell has, I think, a, a, a weird turn. And, and of course, you know, uh, 
the guys in Venom, uh, Newcastle, England, uh, were influenced by by Black Sabbath. Any any heavy metal band in the '80s definitely took a lot of influence from from Black Sabbath. Um, some more obvious than others, which Finder General, of course, New Wave British heavy metal band. Same time period as Venom. Venom was very extreme, incorporating a lot of Motorhead as well as Black Sabbath. Rich Finder General was basically saying, we love Black Sabbath so much, we're just going to be Black Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and who can't respect that? I mean, I, you know, they, they did some cool stuff on their own too. But, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we were saying about how heavy this album is, but it also has changes and Laguna Sunrise, and it has the, uh, you know, the verse part in St. Vitus Dance. So Black Sabbath was this band, and I think sometimes where, where people uh, get it wrong about Black Sabbath is they think it was just always about the heaviness and the, and the, uh, the sluggish, doomy riffs, and that's certainly a big part of the Black Sabbath sound, but there's also all, all these other elements to them, the Laguna Sunrise and the changes, and they, they had that on all their albums, it, it, It's All Right, or... Uh, mm -hmm. she's gone or you know they yeah. always experimented with these with these different things so it's really a good you know volume four is is an album that uh you know it has a lot of different things going on <clears throat> and it each song is kind of its own <clears throat> kind of its own uh thing yeah i i you're, you're definitely right they, they weren't uh, like a one-trick pony they weren't a band that was just limited to playing heavy and didn't have the the talent to to do anything lighter or more instrumental um but but i think with regard to, to the music <clears throat> that they were putting out at this time and they were approaching in in albums that would would follow very very soon sabbath bloody sabbath sabotage uh, technical ecstasy. I, I don't think there was anything necessarily as remarkable about their lighter moments. Changes isn't anything that was so unique that you couldn't find on another contemporary band from 1972's recordings. FX was weird. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that's its own thing there. Uh, Laguna Sunrise, certainly an acoustic instrumental, wasn't anything completely unique. What was unique to Black Sabbath was those riffs that the Iomi's tone, they were so rich, um, full. Um, these lighter moments, like we talked about you know, a few minutes ago, really added uh, emphasis to when the band did get heavy and it created that contrast. Uh, you know, when, when they came with something heavy, they'd, they'd come from something quiet, something more subtle, and then just crush with the next song. But, but certainly no, I mean, they, they weren't just a band that could only play heavy, could only bash things out, you know, they could do lighter things. Sure, I agree with that. All right, well, I think that about wraps it up for our volume four episode. Thank you to everyone out there for listening. Uh, please make sure you go to uh, Facebook. We have a Facebook page, Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. Like us on there so you can stay alert, alerted and updated when we have uh, new episodes coming out. Let us know what you think of the episodes. If you have any ideas for some future episodes, we are going to be branching out and seeing some different things as we go along here. And uh, 
so yeah, we'd just like to thank you all for listening and all the comments that we've gotten on the past episodes. We appreciate all your support. Alright, well thanks everybody and we will see you next time. <laughs>